that's... Okay, let's, uh, let's go ahead and open up, uh, open up our time in prayer. And I just really dedicate the time to the Lord and uh, this teaching. Let's pray. Father God, we just do praise You this morning. God, we just uh, are so uh, humbled. And uh, Father, we just uh, come before You in the fullness of that humility um, of Christ, even as ultimately that example for us. Father, just to be able to share in Your Word, uh, to be able to, uh, Father, just sit and to uh, the depths of it, just penetrates to our hearts. Father, just brings uh, such perspective, reflection, meditation, conviction. And yet, Father, we think we're so thankful for uh, truth. We're so thankful for the Gospel of Jesus Christ and as it being just a key part of the theme for today's closing part of this passage, that for each of us, that uh, by faith in Jesus Christ, Father, the, the Gospel was preached to us. And for that, uh, Father, the, you've just opened our hearts and our minds to truth and by faith in Christ through proclaiming um, the victory that we have in Christ. And ultimately, that that serves as a foundation in our rejoicing, literally amid uh, the trials and the suffering of our own lives. And so I just do pray that um, that truth will permeate uh, through our hearts, that will bring clarity to our minds as we navigate through life. And uh, I do thank you for uh, the time that we have to share, and I pray your Spirit will lead us in our time of sharing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I thought what we would do as we continue uh, in First Peter 4 today, it's, I want you to open up to the epistle of the Colossians, Paul, Colossians chapter 1 for a second. Colossians chapter 1. And I, I must say is that um, as, I, as we have progressed... And I have progressed through these passages that, that I've been teaching over the many, many weeks here, going back to 1 Peter 3, starting in verse 18, through today, 1 Peter 4, verse 6. Um, the pa- passages have been challenging. And I, I look at the difficulty of passages, and yet the clarity of Scripture and the Spirit's guiding us to the, those key things and yet, nevertheless, I also have come to conclusions that when you have a difficult passage, how many times things can be twisted in such a way that um, doesn't make it clear. And so in, in Colossians 1, verse 24, I would like for someone to read that, that statement, because I want to take it and I want to go with it and how it bridges to how our passage today will lead us as it reflects on our conduct, as well as it reflects on the salvation that we have through Christ. Someone ran to read Colossians 1, 24. Interesting passage, isn't it? And uh, you you may have studied this, uh, you know, as you've gone through Colossians and such. But this this rejoicing in suffering, which is sort of uh, this key exhortation that takes us back to the beginning of uh, 1 Peter 1, verses 6 and 7, where he's this rejoicing in these various trials. Paul is saying, I rejoice in my sufferings. 
and to fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. Okay? Twisted perspective on that is that for some, someone might say is that there's something that was lacking in Christ's atonement, which is totally erroneous. It's not true at all. But yet, in fact, you, you could see where someone would go in a certain direction that way. In fact, Christ's work on the cross was complete. It was finished. And in no way could anything, anything, be added to that, especially from a human uh, perspective. And so what is Paul meaning by this? What is Paul's circumstance that we know in, in, the, in the writing of Colossians? What would be his circumstance? Where is he? he he's imprisoned. And so from, literally, from a, a perspective of suffering, we see that his imprisonment itself and we, uh, um, is really the, the basis of why he would start by saying, I rejoice in my circumstances, in my present imprisonment. And it says then that he, what it, he says, he fills up in his flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. Okay, from a, to, to get to the heart of this thing is that if Paul is imprisoned, and we know, and I go back even to the, the book of Acts that we just see, and even the, the messaging of his epistles themselves, is that he is writing to these persecuted believers, these churches, and so in his situation, he is himself experiencing the persecutions that were intended for Christ. In other words, what I'm going to draw a connection from is that persecution all the way goes back. And here was the passage that, uh, that I'm, just going to, I'm going to use as a bridge point. When Jesus is teaching to his disciples, quote, this is in um, Matthew chapter 24, he says that, that they, will, they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by the nations. Christ was always teaching and pointing to the fact that there will, if you align ourselves with Christ, you align Him with Christ, it says that you will be hated. John 15, another one passage. It just talks about, again, the connection that we have. And John 15, 18 says, the world will what? Hate you. So this connection point that we see is that I want you to kind of draw into it is that there is a direct connection with hatred from the world and our association with Christ, our relationship with Christ. That was clearly predicted. It was promised. And ultimately now, let's draw it further, is that there is also then a direct connection to you and I, as believers, to that world and the hatred and that this bringing on of this persecution that comes. So, the connection is between the suffering and literally this fulfillment of the Great Commission, as believers, right? Because we are, we are called to what? Proclaim the Gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ. And so, as a result of that, what are we going to experience then? Hatred. Anger. And this connection point that I want you to see is, is because as we go back to 1 Peter, there's going to be a response that these pagans, these non-believers, or the world is going to give towards believers. And that is surprise and slander. Okay? And so the connection point that we see is that as believers, we have been called to suffer 
with Christ. And so you go back to that Colossians passage, what Paul was basically saying is, is that that which was intended ultimately for Christ, and what I would submit is that all sin, the sin, the hate of, of the world's response is always that reaction to the gospel many times by those that don't believe, the world itself. And so what Paul was saying is, is that those, there is, um, those that were constantly trying to inflict injury and pain on him that he was bringing on himself. And it says, the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body. In other words, it, in Paul's view, is that his whole life was committed, that he was committed to the service of proclaiming the gospel and the testimony of Christ's life. So, directing, linking persecution, trial, and suffering with believers to the promise, but also as we look at it to the ultimate fulfillment of the Great Commission itself. So, wherever we go as Christians and living a life that is proclaiming literally that message, um, some, some will receive it as joy, you and I, right? And yet others are going to reject it. And many, in fact most, will respond with hatred and scorn is sort of the reaction that Peter is going to kind of tie back to today. Thoughts on that? Does that... Do you see a connection to that? I think that when Peter, when Paul wrote that, uh, as I look at, and, and Mark's going to take us to this end, this view to the end of life type of perspective, okay? When you said that this morning, here's these passages, Mark, just to build on that, is that when you go forward this, is that this, this suffering in the gospel being connected this is if you look at at the end of, Paul, of Paul's life in in Second Timothy, Second Timothy one eight. What did he say? Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join me in the suffering for the gospel, according to the power of God. Second Timothy one eight. The next chapter, Second Timothy two three. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ. And then finally, in chapter 4 of of 2 Timothy 4, he says, But you, be sober in all things, endure hardship. And that hardship is this bearing up under suffering. And so, that is sort of a a broader thought, because as we go back to 1 Peter, it helps us to tie in for why he would say it is in verse 6, For this reason the gospel was preached. It was preached for you to experience truly the joy, the rejoicing, even in that suffering. And to me, that rejoicing that Paul, uh, Peter is referencing in chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, is the true evidence. It is the proof of a true saving faith in Jesus Christ. How else? Can, can the, world, the world doesn't rejoice in, in, naturally in that type of of perspective and suffering. Any thoughts on that as we segue into where we left off? Hmm. It is a life of pursuing of Christ in suffering. And this is what Paul says, I'm being filled up with these afflictions of Christ. It's essentially saying is that I'm living every day taking on these this suffering that is coming, this hatred from the world, and he's doing it for Christ. That's the call. And 
Is that is that a popular message in the church today? Yeah, it, it, I think you're exactly right, Mark. Is that the church in this nation? It's not a popular message. If you look at it from a doctrinal standpoint, um, a message of "Hey, let's get excited about suffering" is uh, something that's not going to fit. It, and, and so, therefore, it's like almost is it's it's a it's accommodating a church that is accommodating the tares, you know, because it's it's sort of like well, yeah, makes you feel good, you know. In other words, come on, I, I'm not going to offend. So, contextually, I think Peter's readers were at this point where it was going to be very. It's getting. It's getting tough now. Yeah, it's getting really tough. But don't you think we're our society? Is, it seems to me there's more hostility. So we may. Here's the way I would answer that question. Let's say that you take what, Paul, what Peter's going to say is that okay, look, as believers, enough's enough. Okay, we've we, we're sinners. We've been saved by grace, so don't sin anymore. Okay, but yet now we pursue Christ, and then what he's going to say is, is that look, this is how. The pagans, the world is going to respond. They're going to surpri- respond in surprise, and they're going to respond in slander, okay, with words. Okay, but here's how to answer, here's just how the view of the church may be. Right. Surprise is like, oh, you know, oh, okay, he doesn't run with us anymore. You do your thing, I'll do my thing. That's it. Not angry, right? That's not what it means. It's anger. It is. This surprise is astonishment because we understand that from the perspective of the pagan, that that non-believer, it is hatred to that relationship. But I'm saying is I'm giving you, this is this tolerance thing. It's like, oh, okay. And it's the same thing on the slander part. Because on the slander part, it is not, it's just like, well, these are, those words are a little offensive to me. No. Those, that slander is blasphemy. That's what the means, the meaning behind that word is. So it gets to a whole different level, real quick. It's just how I, you know, how you interpret words. That's why when you interpret, take a passage, and that's that, that Colossians passage. You can see where one says, "Well, that that's obvious why Christ did not. The the atonement was not complete. There were still things. At the end of the day." When you go to um, it, 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 the heroes of faith in, in Hebrews 11 through 12, 3, we, we have faith in Jesus Christ and we have not met Him. And the, the foundations of our very faith, think about that. And yet those in 11 that had not seen, but yet endured suffering and hardship. And I think that's Paul's messaging. Paul's messaging through this. So, you're picking up with this, and I think as it leads into what Mark is going to be um, capstoning on this section of passage, it really gets to it. So, let's move through it and keep that, that discussion going. When we, had, just as an objective standpoint, and again, it's the same handouts that we have, and I, just for the sake of getting you up, I'm going to do a, a quick rapid clickers, clickers to get you caught up on some things, but our objective is as far as what does God want us to learn and do, and I believe that 
this serves as a baseline that w- will launch us into Mark's next week where he gets into this next section of 1 Peter where it's specifically looking at our conduct in suffering and re- requires that we maintain this Christ-like attitude. So in other words, the, the, the operative question that we kept asking and I laid out for you last week and we were going through this, it says, what did, what did Peter mean by says that we should be arm yourselves with this same mind. In other words, what does it mean to be armed for the purpose of suffering? And so we were going to go through, we, we started working through about four or five, three or four of those last week with more to come. But is this Christ-like attitude in living for the present in God's will and knowing that they will live for eternity in His presence. The passage that we had focused on, we've, this attitude of Christ, the will of God, representing this as far as this transformational act, esp, it, and sure, we left off last week in verse 2, we pick back up to this time has already been passed, sufficient for us to carry out what our past was. As believers now, we have a past. And what I'll submit to you, doesn't matter what your past is. Your past was a sinful past. Whether it was, in your view, oh, it was just a little bit of sin. As opposed to, I'm sitting there going, it was a lot of sin. It doesn't matter. It was sin. It was the same separation that we have. And so as we get through this, we apply that to our own lives. It's just saying, enough's enough. The time has passed. And then this transformation of the past is this, the reaction I talked about, is that there is this surprise and the slander that would come, ultimately with this end focus on the gospel. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, may live in the Spirit according to the will of God. How I started a couple weeks ago was I tied beginning verse in chapter 3, verse 18, where it talked about Christ's suffering and dying, the just for the unjust, was made alive in the Spirit to ties it out to the end of verse 6 where you see this similar statement that we are alive in the Spirit according to the will of God. And we'll tie, so I'll close this section out. So just by a quick review, therefore since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. The cross is central. It is the ultimate proof. Christ died the just for the un- unjust in verse 18, yet He accomplished for the believers this ultimate, complete victory over sin and all forces of evil. The arming for suffering that he suffered in the flesh in this this exhortation that connects this whole section with the previous one, which is again ultimately this suffering for Christ, his suffering in the flesh, which will be an important reminder for us because as it as we go down to verse 6, it says there that they might be judged according to men in the flesh. I want to tie back this through because essentially what it's going to go back to is that Christ suffered at the hands of man. In other words, at the hands of flesh. It was that type of suffering. He came in the likeness of the sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, and he commands his readers to arm ourselves with weapons or armor. He came, arm ourselves also with the same purpose. And this same purpose, we looked at this definition of it, it is this, of the same mind. It is for the same purpose. We looked at Philippians chapter 2, verses 5, knowing it produces the greatest victory. Christ died 
in that. It is better to suffer for Christ than to suffer for the world and to put on our armor. Uh, the verse that I'm going to tie back to quite a bit today is, is chapter 3, verse 18. It says, For it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Because that's what's going to, he's, Peter's going to take us through now is some of this, these listing of six practical examples of sin that I believe reflected his audience of these pagans where they have been in their own personal lives. You and I can say, well, no, that doesn't apply to me. It is sin. That was the point. And so, as he would take us to arm ourselves with the same purpose, and this same purpose is that of Christ's suffering in the flesh, as I indicated, as I believe that he was preparing his believers, his audience, for something that was much more significant in their trials and in their suffering, ultimately onto their physical death. For Christ, And so this concept to them of being armed and Paul himself being armed is that whenever you see this reference to the cross itself in Scripture, it's, the cross represents death. It is the execution process itself. And so when Christ would say, take up your cross and follow me, it meant ultimately to be of the like mind and of example of Christ all the way unto, ultimately onto death. It, this, is, this is a book of preparation for the future. And that's what I'm, I'm handing off to Mark as it's going. But that, how do you prepare yourself for that, Patrick? That, that really is the question. And Mark's got the answers for that, right? <laughs> take, take, take the time and to go back and and again, think through, when you, when you read chapter 11 all the way through 12, 3, you look at these martyrs of the church, those, those heroes of faith that clung to a promise by faith also is that it said many never experienced it, never saw it. And that's many times, think about you and I. And part of my reflection on this passage is, is that as it even concludes in reflection of those that have died at the hands of man, or in other words, in the flesh. Think of our dear friends that have died in faith right now. I, I think of even just this past week with you know, Jeff's mom, um, Peterson. I think of, of Howard um, and, May, and Maeve. This is, um, you know, Deb's mom passed away this past week. Well, they were, they were mentors for me. And for Laurie, both of us, when we started coming to the church, uh, he was an elder in the church, and and uh, Deb's mom was just this great godly example of a woman. For and yet, so it's a great reflection time as we even think about her being with the Lord right now. It's all of that suffering in her life has ceased. She has ceased from sin. About that, we're armed. For the, for, the, for the purpose of suffering means that we have clothed ourselves with the attitude of Christ. We have armed ourselves with the same purpose and believers can face suffering because of the same attitude that we would take on that we will experience the same victory. And this victory over sin, as we looked at that passage as it went through last week, it said in there is that because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Another challenging passage. Again, contextually, 
it doesn't mean that we are sinless. It means, as believers, that we are freed from sin in Romans 6. And yet, the he in this, as we saw clearly in Romans 6.10, it, Christ himself suffered and took that on. That he suffered in the flesh. And he has ceased from sin. Is that Christ at that point, when he, and he died on the cross at that point, no longer, as I think about it, could they do any more physical harm to Christ. Right? It was done at that point. It was finished. It was also at that very point of that, that as believers, we experience that same victory at that point. No longer, from an eternal perspective, could any more harm come to us. And yet sin has suffered. that we now, Romans 6 says, that we've been freed from sin. We sin. We all do. But yet, uh, by the power of Christ and His victory we have over Him, that we have this ability. To, in other words, replace this victory is that no longer can sin dominate in our lives. And I believe that this is part of this application that we'll move with it because what Peter is going to um, move us towards is said, look, enough's enough. This was your past. Because of your relationship, your identification in your being with Christ, that we died with Christ, is that it is no longer dominant in our lives. It is a new life. Second Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, the old things have passed away, new things have come. Galatians 2.20 I have been crucified with Christ I no longer live. Christ lives in me. Um, the life that I live, I live by faith in Jesus Christ. No longer for the past. That's the exhortation that Peter's getting at, but this is what this reference is. And the one who suffered are those dead believers. And part of this is I also will bring us to this reflection on those that have done this. They have suffered in the flesh. Those our friends, our, our, our loved ones, those believers all through time that have, have been martyred for Christ, that have given themselves, they have devoted their lives in pursuit of Christ, are with Him. They have ceased from sin. It is done with sin. It ceased from sin. It's, 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 sin is broken. And the power of sin was broken by Christ, this affirming truth, that our union with Christ and He who has been freed from sin, and then this last one is that the believers can face suffering and death knowing that we will enter into eternity free from sin's influences and effects. In many ways, as you and I both know, is that we have seen people that have suffered and that at the same time is that even... When, when the Lord brings them home, it's, it's a rejoicing in recognition of that, that they are now free from that, those effects, those influences that have been sometimes so challenging for us to watch. Christ has suffered. Arm ourselves because He was suffering the flesh has ceased from sin. Jesus willingly faced death for the joy set before Him and endured the cross in Hebrews 12.2. And again, I'm going to, 1 Peter chapter 1, this was at the very, very beginning of our study. Remember it says, In this you greatly rejoice, that now for a little while, if, in, if, need, be, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. 
in this, the very trials themselves, that we would rejoice. Only a believer can rejoice in true suffering this way. Only a believer can experience that. And so the arm for the purpose of suffering means that we have parted ways with the past life of sin. And in other words, what part of that means is that it is this life that we struggle with in sin. And ultimately, this is this victory that Christ has accomplished is that as we continue in the study is, is that you can see the finish line. And are you ready? And part of that being ready is not and I'm going to use the race, when Paul would say is, is that fight as the good soldier, is that you don't let up. You, we're not coasting to the finish line. In fact, it's a charge. It's harder. This is going to be where you're going to kick it in to the last sprint. This is this, this messaging that we see in here. So as to live the rest of our time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. To be armed for the purpose of suffering, our next meaning is it means that we are engaged in the pursuit of God's will, not our own. First Peter, here it says again, it says that the rest of the time that we have. What is that connection point? The connection that we focused on was, it was the suffering of Christ, this, with that connection, Connecting that with a call for us to arm ourselves with the same mind, the same purpose. And so therefore, the one who suffers in the flesh is broken from sin so that we might live the rest of of his life for the will of God and not the sinful desires of men. And getting close to where we left off last week, this rest of the time in Scripture, it means the rest of your life. It is the time that God has afforded you. It is the extent of time that is sovereignly granted to you. It is your time of stay on earth. So, what does that look like for you and I as believers? When we would see this is that we would spend the rest of our life for the will of God in contrast, is what Peter's going to do here for us, in contrast to the old life, the desires of sinful men. What does it look like? Well, as believers, we are in God's will. And so we took a shot at identifying three key things that what is this will. And we looked at Romans chapter 12, verse 2 in that passage. Romans chapter 12, verse 2. And we see in that passage, verses 1 and 2 actually, which is this Living, giving ourselves as a living sacrifice. And so it is the surrendering aspect of this. A life of pursuing God's will is a life of surrendering. And it is surrendering to God. It is an engagement in spiritual worship, which is our acceptable service of worship to God. It is an engagement in spiritual worship. Surrendering, engagement in worship, and then finally do not be transformed to this world. That last part of chapter uh, of verse 2 of Romans is what segues us and ties us specifically into what Peter is going to say. He's going to say, don't be transformed to the world. I'm going to tell you what the world looks like. And he's going to give us six character characteristics of what that looks like. Just from what I believe to be is reflective of his audience, his readers, the lifestyle that these pagans 
had. And so he draws this line, or you could rephrase that, he is like drawing a very clear uh, contrast where he says, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. There's the contrast. So he draws this line, and basically saying to them, who do you align with? With them, with men, or with God? And so, who is our master? Who's army? And we just broke it down simply, and this is sort of where we left off last time, is that there is one group that lives for themselves and does their own thing. One group that lives for Christ and does God's will. Now let's go back to what we were talking about, what the church looks like today. And this is the, the key contrast. That this is the, becomes more and more of the emphasis is self-interest selves. This living for self as opposed to living for Christ. Their own thing or doing God's thing. And that's what we as believers get embattled we're constantly. And I, I so appreciate a chapter like Romans 7 that helps me because you, I struggle. Paul struggles with that sin, but yet ultimately knowing that sin no longer dominates in our life. So he tells believers to arm themselves with this ultimate commitment to do the will of God and to abandon their lifestyles. And this is where we pick up from last week. So let's go back to 1 Peter and let's read through verses 3, 4, 5, and 6 to conclude this section. Someone want to read those verses for us to tie us back through. For the time already passed is sufficient to carry out the desire having pursued a bus, drunken drowsals, dream parties, and above all this they are surprised that you do not run with them and blind you. But they shall give account to him who is judged. The living and the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead. That though they are judged in the flesh as men, live in the spirit of the will of God. Peter transitions us to this part of the transformation of our own lives. What does it look like? He gives us the picture of what it looked like before, and then he's going to remind us of what our ultimate focus is on, and that is living a life for Christ and ultimately for the goal of eternity through all. To be armed for the purpose of suffering means we know that the season of sinning is past. That the season for sinning is past. Peter in that passage, he paints this very clear, vivid description of humanity and ultimately the consequences of sin, which he gets to, which is judgment. Take a second, and if you could, and open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9-10. 1 Corinthians 6. You want to read that for us? In that, in that passage that we see in here is that we see even further descriptions of what it... Now, let me ask you. This was a first century uh, description, right? And Peter builds on that with six more uh, <laughs> descriptions that characterize these pagans from their perspective, clearly just the Gentiles, not the Jews, of course. Uh, what does it look like today? 
What are you seeing? Look at some of those descriptions and even flip back to uh, what you see and we'll go through some of those six words. I'm not going to go through them in great, great detail, but uh, what, one of the words that I like, to pl- I like to focus on when I look at that passage is this, um, what Paul is saying is do not be deceived. Okay, let's, let's, I agree with Mark. Take a look at technology. I, I, I look at it. I can go out there and um, you want to find something about it that, that what, fits what you think is right? You'll find it. You'll find it exactly. And so that, that's, uh, it is. It's just significantly more advanced at this point. So whether it is a lifestyle or some of these characters, in, in many of these situations we see both as individual uh, types of characteristics as well as those that are more social types of things, but it, it just permeates. The point is, is that it looks the same. I, I, exactly what you said. Just be wrong. You don't sue your brother. Watch yourself. You know, God is not going to close you. He said, watch. Like that earlier in the part of their life. And yet, we, what we can share, like in this passage, is that there's still this struggle that believers have with this. And so part of that is, is going back to those very foundational truths. Is to say, is that what was it like before? And that... I, I'm, I'm going to keep. I'm going to live for Christ this way, knowing that I'm going to sin. Hmm. The time for sinning is past. The time for submitting ourselves, being subject to, we'll say, the time for serving sin, is already past. The time for serving sin is already past. And Romans seven. Or you do not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. This is this lifelong uh, challenge that we have in, that in this situation, is no matter what our situation is be, is that ultimately we're going to be in battle. We are in that war right now. But it's time for being subject to that sin, and this is where... We have experienced this victory in Christ. This ceasing from sin is this victory in Christ. It is being freed from sin where it has this controlled dominance in our life. And part of that is this reflection of that and this reminder of it. And so where he transitions us into is that he takes six words that describe this pursuit of the unregenerate, the unbeliever. And it's interesting is like there's three personal and like there's three social types of characteristics. And so again, building off of this contrast of the pursuing the will of God is that those that are the unregenerate are not pursuing God and they are pursuing the lusts of men. So, these words that Peter goes he just, the first one is sensuality, which is a word that simply just means unrestrained. It is this excessive types of indulgences. It's um, unbridled. It is this, uh, it's the old word, it's the debauchery word. It's like this, um, this flood um, of dissipation. In fact, the version, my version says excesses of dissipation, but it is this and how I describe it is that it is this uh, 
unrestricted to me is means it's no longer, it is this, this push out of that type of sensuality. Um, example would be, it is now the, the gay parade. You know, it is this, this parading of the sin out there that is applauding that. I mean, just one example of that. Uh, yeah, actually, um, that, that is this word carousing. Oh, it is? Yeah, which, that was my, I was trying to think of this, this carousing is sort of this, like this, this partying is like this festival, this, they call it like a revel, uh, revelry type of, of action. And so I wrote down in my notes here, Mardi Gras. <laughs> yeah, it's Mardi Gras. There it is. But where is the restriction in that? It's missing. It's totally unrestrained, and that's this description that we see. Now, on this second one, where he talks about this, these lusts, it's this described as you see these this passions. But I want to take it further that it's not always just sexual. It's not always just greed. These lusts in this it is essentially this drive that we have that is taking us to whatever the kind might be. It is this desirous kind that whatever it might be, and it becomes so subtle that it consumes the life when there is this lusting for. In other words, the contrasting of the will of God with the lusts of men, and using that term of lust, is such that it totally dominates your thinking to achieve the outcome. So in other words, it is, it is this sinful passion, this pursuit, that whatever it, i got to do to get it done or to get it to receive that is what this influence of this word or this lust. It is this desirous of various kinds. Drunkenness is this word of overflow or of abundance. It is this picture of habitual types of intoxication. It is this consuming aspect of it. The carousing is that partying or that festival type of thing we, we described. And these drinking parties was this uncontrolled drinking binges themselves that were just totally um, out of control. And then finally, it's kind of like what Mick had talked about, this last statement he describes as them as this abominable types of idolatries. And clearly these are just lawless. They're, these are all, anything that would be in violation of God's will, God's law, is these types of the idolatries. The subtle aspect of that word idolatry is what you were referring to, Mick, that I believe that um, we need to be pull out in our own lives that the Spirit would bring to clear perspective, even as it talks about the, those lusts and things that we have, that we idle and we pursue. So, a similar type, a parallel type of list that we see from the First Corinthians passage that represents the world. It represents that lifestyle separate from Christ. And so this reminder for his readers was, and I, and I believe that it was, this is what it looked like. He, he, everyone in his, um, his audience, his, his readers themselves, those pagans, this is what they were involved in in their own lives. And he's saying the time for serving these things is past. To be armed for the purpose of sufferings, it says, it goes on, that 
means we walk out of step with the world. In all this, the, confirmation, the transformation continues. It says, in all this, Peter writes, they are surprised that you do not run with them in the same excesses of dissipation. In your version, does it say flood of dissipation? Maybe? In your version? Yeah? Okay. And they malign you, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. To be armed for the purpose of sufferings means we walk out of step with the world. So the picture is, is that the world and I are not, we are, we don't want to be in sync. <laughs> it's not in a marching. Left, right, left, right. It's left, I'm right, is this picture we have here. And scripture, I want to just take a second, it, it's, it, it just has so much for us on this particular topic, and I thought we would just take a second and look at a couple of those passages. Let's turn to First John. In fact, John uh, has a couple back-to-back in First John chapter 1. So I'm going to read verses uh, 6 and 7 of chapter 1, and then go ahead and keep, slide over a page to chapter 2, verse 6. Chapter 2, verse 6. Because we, pres- we, we, we have the presence of the Spirit, we have the ability to walk in sync with Christ, out of sync with the world, and at a different step. That's this picture that I have. And one of the things that I, I think is so key, I'm going to go back to kind of draw another connection point. When you... When we looked again at this aspect of these characteristics of the unregenerate, and even when we look at this aspect of unrestrained excessive or this, this overflow of indulgence, the habitual types of intoxication that you see in any of these, it's the habitual characteristics that are lived out in the life. I say that when you look at this, it's the opposite. It is habitually being in the Word. Habitually Pursuing holiness. It's the opposites. And this is this contrast that we see. Out of step with the world. Walk in the same way you walk. Mm. Side note here. Just a thought. Just a question for Peter. It says that, uh, um, and I'm going to read just the New King James. It says, in regard to these, referring to this lifestyle, these characteristics of the unregenerate. In regard to these, they, they think it's strange that you do not run with them. And it says, in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. I like the word flood. I'm just going to ask, I got to ask Peter a question. Because this flooding is this word excesses, okay? I just wonder if there was any connection to what he was talking about in chapter 3 about Noah and the flood of judgment. What do you think? Let's ask him. <laughs> can you make? Can you draw a dotted line between that? Isn't it? Because it's interesting. Is is that as he was talking about Noah as this example, and yet this what the lifestyle looked like at that time, and how God used the flood to as judgment on that life of dissipation. I like the use of the word. So. Uh, We'll ask him someday on that. Kind of interesting. So, when we are faithful and living lives in the pursuit of holiness, in pursuit of the will of God, the response from the world is going to be twofold. This is what response is. As we just read in the passage, 
They think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. They're going to speak evil of you, and they're going to be surprised that you don't do what they do. So here are those two responses, surprise and slander. And let's dig a little bit deeper into those two responses. Take a look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9. Okay, someone read that? Just at this point, is what, what you see in this is really what this being reported to them is that there was this turning from idols to serve a living and true God. There was this turning. This is this change that we see within the lifestyle itself. Now, the, the world, we, going back to how, how I opened this thing up, you go back to um, what Jesus was saying is that if you align yourself with me, the world will hate you. Okay? There is hate. There is rejection. And so, take the word hate, and I'm going to go back to this, how I start with surprise. Is that, how do I know that this surprise is not just like, oh, I'm surprised, Dave, that you no longer run with us. How do I know that it is a anger because of their actions that follow? It's exactly right, Patrick. Because of the fact, the evidence of that is the words, the slander that follows. If it was just like, oh, it's not. In fact, it was anger. In fact, because it is automatically fighting against that, it is hating that, angrily in the form of persecution through, in this case, the, this slandering that would come, this Maligning means to, to, to blaspheme, to defame. A couple other passages in here. It, it is, it, it's, it, it's a manifestation of the world hates you. They hate you as they hated Christ to kill him. That's exactly right. And this is the preparation that he's getting to. They're not going to, you know what, it's not the sticks and stones type of comment. This is gonna, they're going to kill you. And this is this hatred that builds to the point where now it becomes consuming them in a lustful way, meaning that it is desirous in various ways. And that is they desire to kill. They desire to conquer, to defeat. That's been the theme of Satan's MO all along. First uh, Peter chapter 2, verse 12, it says that, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, that's the same thing. They may, by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. <laughs> what that statement is, is that some may even come to faith because of your behavior. Those that were trying to attack would come to faith. Saul is my example of that, right? Um, that's the passage over here, Acts 9.4, where... Uh, what does Jesus say to Paul, or to Saul? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? What's the me? It's, it's Christ, right? And yet it's the church. It's like you're, everything that he was doing to those believers, the church, he was doing it to me. You're kicking against the goads of that. The, the Luke 6 uh, passage, you're familiar with that, is, is you know, blessed are you when you... Uh, when they hate you and revile you and cast you out in the name of Christ, you know, for evil. Surprise and slander. And 
clearly when we see this evidence itself is that it is this out from it. Now, Peter reminds us next that it says in that they malign you, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. This reminder is, is that when you see this word, that he will give account to him, it is, um, it's this legal, it's, it's like, a, like a courtroom uh, type of term that they would be using. So it's, it's a language it's referring to ultimately is that God's going to deal with it. It is judgment. Matthew 18. 23 to 34, and this again, this is just some passages that you can go to. And it's really this instructions that Jesus is giving to his disciples about forgiveness um, and literally describing this whole aspect of what it's going to look like. It says, And when he began, and he, he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him. This whole, this is this parable that he's using about the, the servants in this in this settling of accounts itself is that there will be this ultimate accounting that will occur. Chapter 25, verse 31, I think summarizes it, uh, 31 to 33. So when the Son of Man comes in His glory and with all the holy angels with Him, then He will sit on the throne of His glory and all the nations will be gathered before Him and He will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats, and he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on his left. Slide over to verse 46. These, and these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Those who slander and persecute believers will face the judge in the court. He says that it will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Who is the living and the dead? What does that mean to you? <laughs> it means everyone. It means everyone. It's like saying uh, heaven and earth. It's everything. It's everyone. All the living and the dead. And so all will give account to Him, ready to judge the living and the dead. No one escapes, ultimately, the accounting for those that would persecute believers, this is this promise that we have. Leave it in the hands of God. You know, sometimes um, you ever have a bad thought, you know, like and you see something happening, and you say, well, you know, how come that person is just getting away with murder? He's not. They're not. In other words, leave it to the hands of God. And as we close this, this verse out, for the Gospels and Priests' purpose... That though he has are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. To be armed for the purpose of suffering means that we live in the hope of vindication beyond death. For this purpose, and that is that it all will give an account. When Peter writes that for this reason at the beginning of verse 6 in there, he is taking us back to what he just said, which was this aspect that those will be accounted to by him, the judge. And they will give an account to him who is ready to judge living and dead for this reason. And that is the hope of eternity justified, exonerated. The coming judgment will not only will bring sinners into account for this reason, verse 5, but will also reverse the judgments of men in verse 6. And we'll talk about that as we go forward. The gospel was proclaimed 
to those Christians who are now dead. The purpose of preaching the gospel is to that men would be saved in believing it. You and I. We believe the gospel message. This is this purpose of the gospel. And when we would align ourselves as believers to that commission itself, we know that in contrast to that, the opposite of that, which is this will of God for us, is hatred, persecution, suffering, ultimately at the hands of men, which is death. We're all going to die. And so when he reminds them that God has promised them that through suffering and ultimately to death, they will overcome sin. Some summary points in here. That they may live in the Spirit according to the will of God. That they would live in the Spirit according to the will of God. They will overcome sin. Takes us, bridges us right back to what Christ did in the cross and His triumph over victory, over sin. We will escape final judgment. There is nothing that man can do to us as believers to separate us from God. Worst thing they can do is kill us, and we are with Him. We escape final judgment as promised by God. We would enter eternal heaven in paradise with Him, and ultimately we have ceased from sin at that point, and we are in perfect holy perfection. It's a great picture. So just as Christ has was crucified but was alive in the Spirit and raised from the dead. Believers will suffer and die for their spirits remain alive and enter into the promise of eternal life. Are you familiar with this passage in 1 Thessalonians? This is the rapture passage. And I'm not going to go through that for today in the next couple of minutes. But what I like about that rapture passage is what, why does he tell them that? He says to comfort Comfort one another with these words. In other words, that is part of what this messaging is, is that <laughs> this is a hard, hard message, isn't it? Suffering for Christ and rejoice in that. It's a hard message. And yet, our spirits remain alive through it. It is this hope of resurrection that is evident. You know, I started with this slide and I put it back up because... When we started going all the way back, is I, I, I draw, drew a connection between 1 Peter 3.18, where Christ suffered once for all concerning sin, the just for the unjust, in order to reconcile us to God. And He who was put to death in the flesh made us alive in the Spirit. To 1 Peter 4.6, where we see, for this purpose, that's the gospel message, isn't it? Right here. For that purpose, gospel has been preached even to the dead, that though they are judged according to the flesh as men, they may live in the Spirit according to the will of God. Christ was crucified and died, but, but what vindicated by being raised by the Spirit. Believers had already died, but they were embracing the Gospel and ensures that they will live by the Spirit. Our spirits are going to live on in eternity. And so what combines these two passages is this truth. It is real death. Christ's real death, it is going to be our real death, ultimately, but yet resurrection to life, real resurrection. Christ and ours with Him. As I paraphrase part of this last part of the passage, that when we see our past life and we see what Peter's exhortation is to start looking forward this way, 
is that sometimes our tendencies is to, is is where do we how do we live amid the fact that we're there is surprise astonishment anger and slander and evil and suffering that would be associated with it at the hands of men in flesh it's lived out and ultimately what the messaging is is that leave it behind be subject pursue god and that that's ultimately where the victory will come and so in summary what does it mean to be armed for the purpose of suffering in this passage 1 to 6 we clothe ourselves with this attitude of christ we have parted ways we have ceased with sin no longer does sin dominate in our lives and we engage forward in this pursuit of god's will in contrast to the sinful lustful pleasures of man that pursuit of that the season of sinning is past it's done with it's over go forward and to walk not in sync but out of sync with the world and live in the hope of vindication of eternity and so three questions maybe or as we close out our last couple minutes together here or just to write these things down how has this passage in our discussion how has it affected your perspective on suffering or someone maybe wants to what does the reality of Christ's suffering how does it shape in a concrete way the your living in the Christian life or what changes will you attempt to implement in your life as a result of studying this passage I'm going to kind of just open it up in the last we're about a couple of minutes here two minutes thoughts ask the especially when we look at uh, I think what we concluded was is that that description of the character of this world from first century till today it's the same and it's I believe it's even more ingrained and deceptive from that and, and so we're there well some good takeaway things that you can just reflect on um, and I, I you know we're there is so much depth to this thing and at the same time is that you go back to first Peter 6 and 7 is in this you greatly rejoice um, so that I think is only can only be from having a foundation of depth and perspective to what Christ has done to us and that he has been ultimately that example for us so Mark can you close this in prayer yeah, yeah. Father we just thank you so much Amen thank you